0: Much has been said or written about pornography and how it affects the sexual addict. But what about the partners of those who are tangled up in pornography? How are they affected by it? And what can they do to help the ones they love as well as themselves? Today on Quick Counsel, we're going to look at how porn affects partners.
1: Welcome to the Quick Counsel podcast, where we will give you a simple and practical understanding of counseling issues and how they might apply to your life. Here's your host, Pastoral Counselor, Brett
0: Legg. For those of you who might have missed it, we dealt with the issue of pornography and sexual addiction in episode 24. There we talked with Eric Almodover, Pastoral Counselor, who has not only struggled with pornography, but has overcome it and gone on to help others with the same issue. So if you missed that episode, I want you to go back and check that out. But today, we get the privilege to talk to Eric's better half, Chrissy Almodover. She not only is Eric's wife, but she also is someone who actively helps wives whose partners are addicted to porn. She's going to help us understand how porn affects partners. So Chrissy, welcome to Quick Counsel.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: We've already heard from your husband, Eric. He shared with us his story and his thoughts about pornography and sexual addiction. But today, I'm really interested in our listeners hearing your story. So start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your family and how you and Eric met and got married.
1: Okay. So Eric and I met in Bible school, um, actually on the sand volleyball court. That's where we met. And he made me laugh and he hasn't stopped. Um, And now we have two kids, 15 and 17, and we're in the scary stages of driving. Um,
0: (laughs) You're going to have two driving.
1: Yes. One Mm -hmm. just got a car and she's on the road, so watch out. And the other one will be (laughs) soon.
0: I remember those days. Those are kind of scary days. Um, When did you first discover that Eric was using pornography?
1: Actually, five months into our marriage. Um so, so you didn't know beforehand. No, I I lived in a bubble. Um grew up in a small town and when we were growing up computers were not a thing and I never heard of the term sex addiction or pornography addiction. Um so we were at a church working and um a pastor had come through and talked about checking history online. For our pastors and keeping them accountable. And that was the first time I'd ever heard anything about that. Um, and I went home and asked Eric about it. And of course, you know, he denied or said that wasn't an issue for him. Um, but someone in the church did exactly what that past that visiting pastor had suggested. And, um, they checked the history on the computers and sure enough found something on Eric's computer. And so Um, that was 2000. That was when we, five months into our marriage,
0: five months into the marriage. So what was, what was your reaction when you found out about this? First of all, it was found on his computer. Who told you?
1: Actually, the, the pastor that we worked for brought me into his office to share with me. Um, it was devastating. I mean, confusing, shame, um, fear of what is about to happen with my life. Um, my life up to that point what has been a lie this isn't the man that i thought i married um you know we were supposed to be in ministry we were supposed to be serving god and you find out that there's an addiction looming in your in your life uh in your marriage um and then of course there's a whole devastation on a woman as far as you're not enough you can't compete with that um so my life was a lie and i had, I, did, I had no idea where we were going to go from that point.
0: You felt like your life was a lie, not just his, <clears throat> but yours also. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Well, wow. What, what was the hardest? Of all of that stuff, what was the very hardest piece for you to swallow?
1: Um, I think being young, it was just the feeling of worthlessness. Um, a lot of partners feel that because they can't compete with what their spouses see on the internet or on TV. Um, so they automatically feel like they're not enough as a woman, as a female, that's something we struggle with anyway. So it just magnifies your, the thought that you struggled with all your life growing up with, I'm not enough, or am I enough? It magnifies that in your face and it answers that question for you basically.
0: And no matter who tells you, no, it's not about you. It's hard to believe that, isn't it?
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's
0: just absolutely hard to believe that. Um. Uh, what was the turning point for you, for the two of you? Because I'm assuming things didn't get better overnight. No. So what was the turning and, point?
1: Yeah, and I share this with partners um, that I meet with. You know, that day and age, the churches did not talk about that. So the pastor, the church where it was exposed, we had no idea what to do from there. Um, the pastor, unfortunately, didn't know what to do from there for us. He did the best that he could um he showed us um or encouraged us to go to another church that he had reached out to and they were willing to work with us but at that point it was all dealt with on a spiritual level um you know and it, it is a sin yes but there are so many aspects of that sin that affect our being it has to be dealt with in a more complex arena so it didn't get better from there um we thought we were dealing with it on a spiritual level with the other church. I thought Eric was getting better. And every time we thought we were getting better, we would get deeper into ministry. And of course, God would say, nope, not going to do that. And it would be revealed again. And we call those D-days, discovery days, when the partner finds out something of that magnitude. And so that happens several times for several years. We thought we were getting better. And then lo and behold, something else would show up. So what was the turning point for us was in 2008, we found out about a counseling center in Colorado. Uh, Dr. Doug Weiss does an amazing work with sexual addiction, and so we found out that he does intensives, and we actually got the money, help from family, and we went to Colorado Springs and did a three-day intensive with Doug Weiss, and our minds were blown. For the first time, I actually had validation. Um, it was explained to me what sexual addiction entails and how it affects the being and how it affects the partner, which I was feeling. I just needed words put to it. Um, and we were able to get help. We got the books to go through. We saw what it meant to have be part of a group and have accountability. And that was the turning point for us. And we went back home from the intensive. We actually had polygraphs, too.
0: No kidding.
1: Yeah. So that's a huge thing that Doug Weiss uh, implements in the program is polygraphs. Um, The partner needs, at this point, her whole foundation has been shaken. She has no foundation. And so if she's going to move forward in the relationship and the marriage, she needs a solid foundation to stand on. So a polygraph is just another aspect of that. Like, okay, this is the truth. This is everything. At least I know where I'm going from here.
0: It's a way to rebuild trust then.
1: Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So we went back to Missouri with our books back home, and um, we tried to do the work. The problem is we didn't have any groups. We didn't have a counselor that specialized in addiction, and uh, we didn't have any kind of accountability. So um, I told Eric at that point, for me, for me to do this, for me to know that I've given my everything that I can in this marriage and to move forward, um, we needed to move. So we moved to Colorado And we were there for a few years to the point where we were actually, you know, we were doing the program and we got to the point where we were co-leading groups there as well. So um, God used that in our life to open our eyes, to see the need. Obviously that, you know, churches just don't talk about it enough. And a lot of times they just don't know. They don't understand it. And um, I think that's the hardest part for partners. There were many things that were said by pastors to me that actually cause more damage than good. So,
0: give me an example
1: um, that I needed to be more in the bedroom. You know, already,
0: a pastor actually told you that. Yes. Oh, man. Already,
1: I was. You know, that whole question of not enough was answered for me by Eric's actions. So, to have a pastor tell me that, um, or even to spiritualize the problem, you know, if you're not doing enough. In your relationship with God to the point, you know, maybe you're because it's you're not praying enough. You're not reading. Your spiritual life is not what it needs to be to keep dealing with this sin in your life.
0: So it felt like you were being blamed for the problem.
1: Right. Or just not or not helping Eric in the problem, because then I was looking at him the same way. Like, are you even saved? Why are you dealing with this over and over and over again? That's spiritual abuse. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, didn't that make yeah, you angry
0: when somebody would tell you stuff like that?
1: Right. Well, it took me a minute. I had to get to Colorado and and realize the truth of the matter. It's 100% the addict's fault mm-hmm. for the trauma. But then I learned that it's 100% my responsibility for my healing. And so a lot of times partners, they don't have enough strength to do what it takes Maybe they're stuck in fear because that's what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to be stuck in fear. He wants to immobilize us. But the minute that the partner wakes up and says, no, I'm worth more than this. I am enough. Mm -hmm. I deserve more in my life. The minute that they draw a line in the sand, then they can create an environment at home that encourages the partner to do the work Mm -hmm. because you're setting boundaries. Or, unfortunately, they can make their own decisions. Um. But you can heal. The partner can still heal from that and move on.
0: So it's a lot about the partner setting boundaries. Yes, it is. Was that hard for you? Because it's hard for some people to set boundaries.
1: I think when you get to the point you've had enough and you're mad enough, you learn pretty quickly to set a boundary.
0: Anger is not always a bad thing, is it? (laughs)
1: Right. It's not always
0: a bad thing. So this whole thing completely upended your lives for... A year to two years. I mean, even up to moving, losing jobs, the whole nine yards.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: I can't imagine what that was like for you. Did you ever imagine that life would be that way? No. It no. was
1: devastating. Um, you know, you you start asking questions like, God, what did I do? What, what did I do to deserve this? I went to Bible school. We were going to be in ministry. Um, we just wanted to serve you, right? Right.
0: You're getting teared up.
1: <laughs> I am.
0: <laughs> it's still fresh, isn't it?
1: Well, I don't think, it's not that it's fresh. It's, I just know that the hurt that they're going through. Um, you know, I spoke with one today, just found out. Um, and I, I just feel for them.
0: Yeah, you can still empathize deeply with them. Right. Do you ever think in a million years when you were going through all of that kind of stuff that you and Eric both would wind up in a recovery type ministry?
1: You know, I know God, you, he allows us to go through things so that we can help others. So I knew that that was a possibility, um, depending on Eric's choices and his recovery. Um, but I, I didn't necessarily think we could be back in ministry again. Mm-hmm. I figured it would be something on the outside of ministry, but yes, I did feel like God was wanting to lead us to something more. hmm For sure.
0: Tell me about how this recovery process works.
1: Specifically,
0: Eric's talked about in the last other episode, he talked about the attic, but tell us how the recovery process works for a spouse.
1: So, recovery work for a spouse is very similar um, as far as the work itself um, to that of an addict, because we still have a program where we use the 12 steps. There's still exercises that we use that help us acknowledge our emotions, the coping mechanisms mm-hmm. that we used, um, just to cope in life, um, during the process of the whole manip- manipulation, the lies. Um, so it's, it's. It's doing your exercise work. It's doing anger work. It's writing journals to yourself. It's doing emotional work. Um,
0: This sounds very structured.
1: It is. It's very structured. But the groups are highly important because they create not only accountability for the addict, but they do uh, create accountability for the partner because so many times we act out in our own ways with those negative coping mechanisms that we created.
0: Give me an example.
1: Um, Anger issues. There were so many times I would lash out at Eric. Um, Or control. So long, my coping mechanism was trying to control the environment. So going to the mall. Eric, don't look over there. Or Mm -hmm. whatever I need to do to control the environment. Um, You got to the point where you're OCD. You know, just everything around you, you're thinking, okay, how is... How is my addict going to view this Um, and trying to keep that when it was never in my control to begin with, right? And there's nothing I can do. They make their own choices because it was 100% them. It had nothing to do with me.
0: So if you're not careful, their dysfunction breeds dysfunction in you.
1: It very much does. And you become codependent on that for sure.
0: Are you a control person anyway?
1: I don't know that it really showed itself until this, honestly.
0: So that, if you're if you're a control person, that's definitely going to bring it out.
1: Definitely, but I think it would bring it out regardless. First step is realizing that you're powerless. Um, that's important, I think, because so many of us try to control the situation. We think that we can control it, and we don't. So regardless if that's something you're prone to or not, it creates it. And we have to realize that we're powerless and that there's a higher power.
0: And that can take some time, can it? How, about how long does this process take for someone to go through, for a partner to go through?
1: Well, in um, Doug's new book, The Partner Betrayal Trauma, he actually breaks that down. There are so many variables. Mm-hmm. We all have the trauma, but depending on our background, depending on our religious experiences, depending on our... Um, Physical experiences Beforehand with other partners Um, There are so many variables Um, If As he mentions in his book If there's one partner that comes in And she knows who she is She knows it's the the addict's 100% responsibility of his Then her Outlook, her perspective May not have been affected in that way As someone who had a lower self-esteem He also mentions Trauma, if like in my life I lost my brother when I was 16. I had already had trauma in my life. And so I was already weakened in that regard emotionally. Mm-hmm. So that also is a variable that plays in your healing.
0: So if someone comes in and and they do this to me sometimes and they say how long will it take for me to get through this? You can't really tell them.
1: I can't really tell them.
0: That's frustrating for them too. I mean,
1: isn't we it? can ballpark it maybe a year to a year and a half, but I mean, that's really getting in there and doing the work, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Too. Year and year and a half is people working really hard at it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Do you have anybody that, when you tell them that, they get discouraged and. Yes. And then they back off.
1: Mm-hmm. It's too hard. I can't do this. Yeah.
0: I bet that's heartbreaking when you see
1: that. It is. I have to learn to not take it personally. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's all about courage just to step out and say, hey, I need help in this. If you could just do that, the help Mm -hmm. is there, you know? Um, The work has been done to help you. Just, you have to reach out and just say, I need help.
0: What was the hardest boundary you had to set? You talked about boundaries earlier. What was the hardest one you had to set?
1: For partners, I think it's self care.
0: Self care. Explain.
1: Well, we already think that we're worthless. Like I said, that question was already falsely answered for us that we're not enough. So we don't take the time to. Take care of ourselves. Um, we're having a bad day. The emotions are high. We need to go for a walk. We need to go get a massage if you can afford it. You know, go get your nails done. Um, call up a friend. You know, and I, I think that's the other thing is the enemy. He wants to keep us isolated. Um, so that and being an introvert, that was a hard, another hard one for me was reaching out, and that's part of the program is. Um, the five C's, we call them the five commandments, right? You have to start with morning prayer. Mm-hmm. You have to read some sort of recovery material. You have to call someone. And you have to go to group. And then the fifth commandment is evening prayer. And so I think a lot of times for partners, it's hard for them to reach out. You know, we had this perfect picture, especially with social media. It's even harder now, right? We, rec- we create this beautiful picture of our family, of our marriage, going on trips. And all the while, we're alone and we're sharing this deep, dark secret in our house. And so it's really hard to come to grips and say, no, this is who I am. This is what I'm dealing with right now. And it's ugly, but this is who I am. And I won't forget it. I had one friend, because I had been carrying this around for eight years. Um, at that point, my mom knew, but nobody else knew. And so I had a friend. We went to McDonald's, let the kids play around in the in the um, play area. And I just broke down and told her everything. And she was the perfect person. It was obviously a God moment, because... There was no judgment, and I think that's what we worry about the most. What are my friends going to think about me? I'm not who I said I was. My life is not what I said it was. And so when you have that person that you can be honest with, it really does start tearing down some of those walls that you were building.
0: Is that one of the benefits of of a recovery group? Instead of just doing an individual thing but having people in a group, is that ability to share?
1: That's... The main reason, yeah, is to share. And when you come in with all these crazy thoughts in your head that the enemy has been working on you all week for, and you come to group, and you spit it out, and they're just honest with you, right? And they just tell you that's crazy, that's not true, that's not the truth, and just help you, you know, get out of your own head.
0: And it's easier to believe them because they've been there and done that. That's right.
1: So they Mm -hmm. have the
0: credibility. Now, I know you're a person of faith and not everyone that goes through this is, but what benefit has that been to you as you've gone through this process?
1: Um, It's a, it's huge. Um, Even if you're not a person of faith, when you go through the steps, you have to acknowledge that there's a higher power because you're powerless. And so um, I didn't always feel God there, but I know he was there. And I can look back on it now. God is in the process of redemption and rest- restoration. And a partner that just found out that maybe listening to this probably thinks that's the furthest from the truth. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. God does want to pull you through this. There were a lot of times that I wondered if God was there. But I think asking God to pursue you in that moment, he will. I've heard partners talk about this. They don't even want to pick up their Bible anymore. They don't even know what to say to God because they're so angry. Um, God found a way to pursue me through music. I actually created a CD of a bunch of songs that he used to speak to me during that time. So I think that if you're just honest with God, he already knows what you're thinking. He already knows what you're feeling. He already knows you're angry. I think if you ask him to just pursue your heart, he will.
0: So there's an anchor there.
1: There's definitely an anchor there. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I know you're getting ready to start a group, and it's not necessarily a specific group for partners of people who are addicted to porn. It's more of a kind of a marriage betrayal group, but that certainly right. fits in it. Mm-hmm. So so how do you see those issues being common? What's the commonality to those issues?
1: The commonality is the trauma. The trauma is there regardless. Regardless if, they're, if it's your spouse... Um, Betrayed you through sex addiction, pornography addiction, or if it was infidelity, even emotional or physical affairs, or even intimacy anorexia. I'm not sure if Eric talked to you about intimacy anorexia. Even that creates trauma Mm -hmm. in a partner's life. Um, And intimacy anorexia is when there is the act of withholding from the spouse to the partner whether it's emotionally, sexually, physically, spiritually. And the partner is married and alone is the term that Doug Weiss uses. They're very alone, and that creates trauma. And that still creates an environment that they are trying to cope in and create coping mechanisms. So this group um, works for any of those instances because there's still trauma that has to be dealt and worked through.
0: Married and alone, that's a powerful phrase married mm-hmm. and alone right and there's more of them out there than we'd like to believe
1: mm-hmm. And a lot of times the anorexia is what has led to the affair and the pornography addictions
0: so, so pornography is not always just about sex
1: no you have to get to the root cause as we kind of get
0: ready to wrap up here talk to the person who's listening who has sat in your seat Talk to the person who you know. I know you have this big heart. I see your eyes well up with tears as you talk about this partner. So talk about what do you want them to know? What do you want to leave them with? What, what's the one thing you want them to take away from all
1: of this? I want them to know they're not alone because that's the one thing the enemy is working on. He wants them to feel alone. He wants, them to, he wants to isolate them. He wants to keep them in fear so that they're immobilized. And I want them to know they're not alone. Um, there's more people than we even know that are experiencing this and dealing with this. And maybe they don't even understand what's truly going on. Maybe they just have a gut feeling. Um, I think God gives women an intuition that he doesn't necessarily give men. And I think you need to learn to stick to your gut. You need to learn to believe that intuition and believe behavior. There is hope, and I encourage them not to try to do it alone. There's too many lies out there from the enemy to keep them stopped in their tracks so that they can't move forward. God is in the business of restoration, right? He wants that for them. So if you've got God on your side and you have help, then there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel.
0: You keep saying, you are not alone, you are not alone. Yet I know you, you're an introvert. So it mm-hmm. must take something very powerful to reach out to people in the middle of your introversion. Right. <laughs> And this sounds like this is it for you.
1: That's because I've I've, I've known the truth. I've seen it and, and I recognize it. And I want others to know that that's out there for them.
0: Is there hope? Because some of them are sitting there listening today and they're not believing that there's hope.
1: There's definitely hope. And, it. you know, again, I go back and I don't want this to be discouraging, but it doesn't matter what your spouse decides. You can have a fulfilling, well-meaning life, regardless of what your spouse chooses. I've been in group with women who were in circumstances that I don't know that I could get through myself. But I see that I saw them do it, and it just pushed me on. And And now they're living beautiful lives. And, you know, I think we have to get away from that codependency that we have to, life has to look a certain way us to be happy that's what recovery is going to do for them
0: that is a good word of hope thank you for coming thank you for being bold enough to kind of share your story for Mm -hmm. others because i you and i both know that's what helps other people get better is when we share our stories so thank you for coming on quick counsel i appreciate it
1: thank you brett thanks for having me
0: we're going to wrap up this episode of Quick Counsel today, and I hope it's been helpful for you. I hope more than anything that you will share this with somebody who needs these words today. If you want to find out more from me, you can go to bretleg.com. That's one T and two G's. You can also check me out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you on the next episode of Quick Counsel.
1: Thanks for joining us today for Quick Counsel. This podcast is meant to give you a simple understanding of counseling issues and is in no way intended as a substitute for professional counseling or therapy. If you feel you need further help, please contact a local counselor, therapist, or physician. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will join us for the next episode of Quick Counsel.